Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shear, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. This is the first episode of a mini-series within the series that I'm calling, Were They Great? You know how there are a bunch of rulers who get the title, The Great, tacked onto their name? Alexander, Catherine, Pompey. Well, if you're like me, maybe you sometimes wonder if that person actually deserved that title. So I thought, whenever I felt like covering a ruler we refer to as so-and-so the Great, I would make the episode over whether or not they actually should be called the Great. I'm sure at the end of the day something like this is a bit subjective, but history is not always objective. Wars are great victories for one side while possibly being an embarrassment or tragedy for the other side. So, even if it's looking at their rule through a 21st century lens, it's time to try to see if maybe we can pull back the curtain on some of these legendary rulers. Since the very first episode of this show began in Russia, it's only fitting that our first great ruler should also be Russian. The ruler of the week is Peter the Great, the first man to claim the title Emperor of Russia. This is a man who completely revolutionized Russia during the period of time known as the Enlightenment. Sounds pretty great already, right? So without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to the turn of the 18th century Russia, and Tsar Peter I, was he great? Not too much has changed in Russia since we last saw it all the way back in episode 1 of the show. After all, Peter was born only about half a century after the false Dmitri debacle. Let's do a little refresher course in case you've forgotten what happened. So Russia was in a great place called the Time of Troubles. It was a period lasting almost 20 years, beginning with the death of Feodor I, son of Ivan the Terrible. The Tsardom was then placed in the hands of Boris Godunov, Feodor's brother-in-law and advisor, because Feodor hadn't sired any heirs. Enter the three false Dmitris who created more turmoil. And that's not even mentioning the fact that Russia was also at war with its neighbors to the west, the Kingdom of Poland-Lithuania, and to the south, the Ottomans. But we'll put a pin in that for now. What I didn't talk about in last episode was the time period we're dealing with. Jumping from the renaissance of last episode, we are now in the next era of western civilization, the Age of Enlightenment, more commonly just known as the Enlightenment. Unlike the classical philosophy and new art movements of the Renaissance, the Enlightenment was an era of more modern philosophical ideas and the emergence of modern science, which is why the Enlightenment is also known as the Age of Reason. Some historians like to pinpoint the Enlightenment as a purely 18th century time period, but a lot of its ideas and major players were living in the 17th century. A lot more of the well-known names of this time include the philosopher Voltaire, René Descartes, the I think therefore I am guy, and Isaac Newton, the apple gravity guy, but also the inventor of calculus. This was also an age that ended with and inspired massive revolutions across the globe. The founding fathers of America were major Enlightenment era figures as well as followers of the ideas being played out. A lot of historians also give a closing period of the Enlightenment as the French Revolution in the 1790s, the one with Marie Antoinette, not the one from Les Mis. However, this period would also go on to influence the people of the 19th century with further revolutions, like the French Revolution in Les Mis, as well as philosophers like Karl Marx. Russia would take full advantage of the Enlightenment, 
though I won't go too far into that because most of this was after Peter's reign. But a quick look in would see the opening of Russia's first universities and public museums. However, Russia would first need a strong hand to guide it from the mess of the Time of Troubles to get to this period of the Enlightenment. Luckily, it found a means to do this with the House of Romanov. The Romanov family were originally boyars, remember all the way back in episode 1, these were the hoity-toity nobles of Russia and other Eastern European nations. The Romanov family was actually relatively new, eh, kinda, seeing as the surname came about during the reign of Ivan the Terrible. They were also descended matrilinearly, meaning via the bloodline of the mother, to the Rurik dynasty, the first dynasty of Russia that ended with Feodor I. Last callback from episode 1 for now. You might remember that false Dmitri II made a member of House Romanov Patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, the highest position in said church. This man was Feodor Romanov, patriarchal name Philaret. In 1612, after all the fighting between eastern nations ended for the most part, the Zemsky Sabor, the parliament of the Russian Tsardom, began offering the position of Tsar to several families who were related to the Rurik dynasty, but basically everyone they asked said no. They then asked Feodor's son, Mikhail, if he would be Tsar. Mikhail, who at this time was living in a monastery, almost said no until his mother convinced him otherwise. So on July 22, 1613, Mikhail was crowned the first Russian Tsar of House Romanov. With a new family in charge of Russia, things became peaceful once more. Or at least as peaceful as you could get in 17th century Eastern Europe. The Tsardom of Russia was now ready for a new lease on life. All it needed was someone strong enough to guide it. I want to get into Peter's actual achievements rather than Doddle in his early life, but it would be wrong of me to have a show like this and not tell the story of how Peter became the monarch of Russia. His father was Tsar Alexei, son of Mikhail Romanov. Peter was Alexei's son through his second marriage, but his first marriage had given him 13 children, though only three would end up surviving long enough to be important for this story. The three surviving children were Sophia, Feodor, and Ivan. When Alexei died in 1676, Feodor took over as Tsar, becoming Feodor III. However, Peter's older half-brother would only reign for six years before succumbing to illness and passing away. Like Feodor, son of Ivan the Terrible, this new Feodor did not leave behind an heir, leaving a power vacuum that quickly needed to be filled. This led to a fight between the families of Tsar Alexei's wives, the Miloslavsky family, and the Narishkin family. Peter's mother was Natalia Narishkina. The throne would immediately pass on to Ivan, Peter's other half-brother, but he was chronically ill and also probably suffering from mental illness or cognitive development issues. So the Boyar Duma, a council of boyars with legislative power, decided it would be better if Peter was put on the throne with his mother as regent because Peter was still only 10 at this time. The Miloslavskys, Ivan's family, were obviously pretty upset by this, and Sophia, Ivan's sister, ended up leading a rebellion in order to reverse the decree. The rebellion ended up working, kinda, because it ended with both Ivan and Peter ruling as code czars, 
though Ivan would be known as the Senior Tsar. However, it was actually Sophia who had the most power during this time. Luckily, because he was 10, Peter didn't really care about being Tsar and let his half-sister do as she pleased until she started screwing over Russia with military defeats in Crimea. Now 17 years old, Peter decided he was ready to enter the world of politics and began amassing followers to overthrow Sophia. His forces eventually forced her out of power, and Peter made his half-sister give up everything she had and become a nun. Once more, Peter and Ivan ruled as co-Tsars of Russia, though at this time Peter's mother was the real power as regent. When his mother died in 1694, Peter, now 22, started to really gain traction as the ruling power in Russia, though Ivan was still kind of there. Two years later, his half-brother would pass away, leaving Peter as the monarch of Russia at the age of 24. Peter was now a grown man, and apparently super tall as well. Like, he was reported as being over two meters tall, which is over six and a half feet tall. The usual height he's given is six feet eight inches. Just an absolutely massive lad. I would say with all that height came the strong hand Russia needed, but apparently his hands were awkwardly small for his size. So let's say it was time for a metaphorical strong hand rather than a real one. Actually, he was allegedly still pretty strong, so the metaphor holds. Because Peter had not really been involved in the full political sphere during his youth, he wasn't actually given the normal education a future czar would have received. While Feodor and Ivan were no doubt taught by Russian teachers, Natalia Narishkina decided her son would be taught by a more diverse crowd of teachers from further west. This western influence on Peter's life would come to be one of the most central themes of his entire reign as czar. For almost all of its existence, Russia, and at this point I'm referring to the culture of Russia as we know it formed by the Rurik dynasty, was actually more Eastern culturally than it was Western, despite having many interactions with its European neighbors and its strong ties with Christianity. Peter's reign would come to see Russia become part of the Western world. In 1697, Peter came up with a plan to travel across Northern and Western Europe. This massive venture would come to be known as the Grand Embassy. The main reason he embarked on the Grand Embassy was actually to secure ties with other European powers to push back the power of the Ottoman Empire. Because of course the Ottomans have to show up again, we're dealing with Eastern Europe after the fall of Constantinople after all. Peter's plan was to meet up with members of the Holy League. Remember back in the Vlad the Impaler episode how there was the Order of the Dragon? This was basically the newer, less awesomely named version of that group, whose goal was to assert the perceived dominance of Christianity over Islam. Peter's hopes were that he could expand the Holy League, because at this time it was only Eastern and Central Europe. If he could get some more friends on board, Peter was hoping Russia would be able to conquer some of the Ottoman territories and gain full control of the northern coast of the Black Sea. Unfortunately, the expansion hopes did not play out very well. However, Peter did learn quite a bit about shipbuilding when he went to work in a shipyard. He would use this newfound knowledge and skill to help build the Russian Navy, though I'll be getting to that later. 
the Grand Embassy ended up getting cut short when, in 1698, Peter was called back to Russia to put down another rebellion. Though he did not get everything he wanted, Peter ended up getting several workers from Western nations to come back to Russia for various projects. Also, his journey out west solidified something for the Tsar. Western European culture, in Peter's eyes at least, was far superior to that of Russia. Some of the first westernization changes Peter made to Russia seem a bit strange and almost funny at first. The nobility was no longer to wear traditional Russian clothing, which was usually longer dresses and robes. Instead, they were to wear the height of Western-style fashion. Second, off with the beards. No Western European nobleman wore a beard. It was even said that Peter personally cut the clothing and shaved the beards off his advisors. Technically, boyar men could still keep their beards, but they would have to pay a tax in order to keep their beloved facial hair. On a nicer note, though, Peter attempted to end the common practice of arranged marriages among Russian nobility. The Tsar had come to realize that arranged marriages usually resulted in unhappy married lives rife with domestic violence. Who would have thought? A massive nationwide change was also enacted in 1699 that would switch Russia's calendar from the old Byzantine-style calendar to the slightly more Western Julian calendar, the calendar that was originally started by Julius Caesar, but used years according to the birth of Jesus, like the Gregorian calendar that we use nowadays. Oh, what is the Byzantine-style calendar, you may be asking, and how is it different from the Julian calendar? Well, first off, the new year started on September 1st instead of January 1st. Second, its year was reportedly based on the creation of the Earth, which that calendar dated to, in our modern calendar, as September 1st, 5509 BCE. You know, only off by a few billion years, but A for effort. Peter declared that this new calendar would be put into effect starting with the next year, meaning Russia joined Western time on January 1st, 1700. Peter's westernization of Russia did not stop at simple cosmetic and calendar changes. Now, he planned to rebuild Russian society as a whole from the ground up. One of the preliminary major changes Peter made was a complete restructuring of Russia's administrative districts, or at this point, a lack of them. Russia was almost a series of feudal city-states when Peter took the throne. The elite ruled over all the peasants and slaves within the surrounding area. Peter sought to change this by drastically reducing the power of the boyars, and in 1708, he created eight different subdivisions of Russia called the governorates. Each ruled by a governor, Peter chose himself. Five years later, in 1713, he created another system for each governorate called the National Council, which was a group of around 10 civil servants whose job it was to assist the governor. Six years after that, Peter would scrap all of that work and instead make a new system based off of Sweden's government where metropolitan areas were fairly independent while the rural parts of Russia were more heavily controlled by the central government. As I mentioned, Peter hated the boyars and began creating systems to reduce their powers. 
Besides creating the governorates, Peter also created a system called the Table of Ranks. This was a new hierarchy of nobility. The ranks were based on merit and loyalty to the Tsar, meaning that, theoretically, nobility was no longer hereditary. If a regular citizen of Russia worked hard enough, they too could reach a higher station in life. And soon enough, the boyars began to be replaced by the hard-working, skilled laborers of Russia. But it wasn't just nobility that changed. The common folks of Russia also received a revamped position, though this was definitely for the worse in their favor. Peter created a new, massive tax system to help afford the changes to his new Russia. Besides the beard tax that I mentioned earlier, Peter also created taxes on things like beekeeping, fishing, and even bathing. When this didn't seem to cut it, mostly because people were finding loopholes somehow, Peter decided to kick it up a notch. He created a new poll tax to replace the older household tax. Before, multiple families would gather their resources together under one roof in order to avoid a household tax, but this was a no-go with Peter's new system. The working class began to struggle under the weight of the new system, but there was still more to their troubles. Peter redefined the terms of serfdom in Russia, making it so wealthy landowners could claim more peasants as their serfs. By the time Peter's reforms were complete, there was little difference between a serf and a slave. With all the new administrative changes, it only made sense that Peter would need a fancy new capital city to go along with it. Enter St. Petersburg. Peter would gain control of the land due to his victory in a war against the Swedes, I'll get into that later. He founded the city in 1703 in the hopes that he could have a shiny new city on the sea to help bolster maritime trade and his desires for a Russian navy. Russia's previous capital had been Moscow, but Moscow was not located on the ocean. Russia's major port city at the time was Arkhangelsk, but it was located much further north and could not operate as a port during the harsh Russian winters. With a perfect spot on the Baltic Sea, Peter's new capital covered both failings of the two cities. Now, here's the problem with 18th century Baltic Sea beachfront property. It's swampland. So building a city there proved to be a very difficult undertaking. Also, Russia technically did not own the land when construction started on the new capital. The nation was very much still at war with Sweden, who actually owned the territory in which St. Petersburg was located. Russia wouldn't gain control of that part of the Baltic coastline until 1721, 18 years after Peter's plans were put into place and 9 years after he officially moved the capital city there from Moscow. As with the rest of his plans for Russia, Peter's new city would be developed in a very western style. He hired architects from both Switzerland and France as project leaders throughout different points in the undertaking. However, the work would mostly be done by the peasants and serfs. And during that long construction in Baltic swampland, tens of thousands of workers would lose their lives. But hey, at least Peter had his new city. St. Petersburg is the anglicized version of the city's name, in case you didn't know. The original name of the city given by Peter was not Russian, but Dutch, Sankt Peterbirch. It was named after St. Peter, the Apostle, Peter's patron saint. 
It would later change its name to Sankt Peterburg, which is its modern name in Russian, after the German style of the name. I don't want to sideline the thousands of deaths that occurred during the construction of the city, but this humongous project was actually a pretty big win for Peter as far as his goals of rebuilding Russia as a powerhouse in the Western world. He finally had a place for trade in the new Russian navy. Well, he would after he finished that pesky war with the Swedish Empire. I've talked a lot so far about Peter's westernization of Russia, which despite its flaws in drowning the lower class with debt and swampland construction related deaths, was actually a very bold move that paid off in the end. However, oddly enough, revamping your culture does not complete the jump from Tsardom to Empire. It might be worthy enough to grant you the title The Great, but we still have a bit more story to go before I decide whether or not Peter was actually worthy of that title. To be an empire, one must conquer. As mentioned earlier, when Peter first took control of the throne of Russia, his major concerns were with the Ottoman Empire. I've talked several times about the Ottomans in this show, but I haven't mentioned some of the other cultures that lived within the empire. One of those groups was the Tatars, a group of Turkish-speaking people who were descended from the Mongols when Genghis Khan took over that area of the world. Though they were much more Turkish now than Mongolian, the Tatars still mostly lived under the control of the Crimean Khanate. They controlled the Black Sea during this time. The Black Sea has always been important for trade in Eastern Europe and Western Asia, dating all the way back to ancient Greece and even before. Using the Russian navy that was available to him at the time, this was in 1695, so before the Grand Embassy, Peter waged war against the Tatars and Ottomans, though he would initially fail to capture their fortress at Azov, which was situated near the northeastern corner of the Black Sea. He relaunched the fighting the next year, this time with a larger naval force, and successfully captured Azov, giving Russia a new major port. After his victory at Azov and the Grand Embassy, Peter began planning on how to get territory further north along the Baltic Sea, the land that would eventually become St. Petersburg. This land, as previously mentioned, belonged to the Swedish Empire. Luckily, Sweden was at war with its neighbor, the Kingdom of Denmark-Norway, and yes, that's hyphenated Denmark-Norway, not the two modern countries. In 1700, Russia decided to launch an attack against Sweden in the city of Narva, in what is now Estonia. Russia would be utterly defeated in this fight, but this would not be the end. In fact, this was only the beginning of what would come to be known as the Great Northern War. As always, I'm not super into military history, so it's just going to be a quick overview of the Great Northern War. The conflict lasted for about 20 years, so a vast majority of the time Peter was actually Tsar. On one side was the Swedish Empire with its allies which included several kingdoms in what would become Germany, the Ottomans, and Great Britain, which would actually become the UK during this time instead of just Britain. On the other side was Russia with its allies, Denmark-Norway, the Commonwealth of Poland-Lithuania, again the same situation with Denmark-Norway, Saxony, a kingdom in what would become Germany, and several other forces throughout Eastern Europe. Throughout the war, 
Russia had gained an increasing amount of presence across the Baltic. This was great news for Peter's hopes of becoming a maritime power, but bad news for everyone else. When Sweden was close to conceding the war against its opponents, other members of the anti-Swedish coalition managed to reduce Russia's territories gained down to its modern holdings on the eastern coast of the Baltic Sea. Finally, in September of 1721, Russia and Sweden signed the Treaty of Nystad, which ended the war between the two powers. As said before, Russia would keep land along the Baltic it had conquered, but in return it had to give back portions of Finland it had taken from Sweden. And though on paper Sweden said this was fine, they'd launch a couple war efforts later in the century in order to try to get it back. They wouldn't, by the way. After the war, Peter would officially be given the title Emperor of Russia, and no joke, his full title was as follows. The most excellent and great sovereign emperor Pyotr Alexievich, the ruler of all the Russias, of Moscow, of Kiev, of Vladimir, of Novgorod, Tsar of Kazan, Tsar of Astrakhan, and Tsar of Siberia, sovereign of Piskov, great prince of Smolensk, of Tver, of Yegorsk, of Perm, of Vyatka, of Bulgaria, and others, sovereign and great prince of the Novgorod Lowerlands, of Chernigov, of Ryazan, of Rostov, of Yaroslavl, of Belizersk, of Udora, of Kondia, and the sovereign of all the northern lands, and the sovereign of the Iverian lands, of the Kartlian and Georgian kings, of the Karabardian lands, of the Circassian and mountain princes, and many other states and lands western and eastern here and there, and successor and sovereign and ruler." That's the entire title, I'm done now. Imagine having to say that every time you want to announce your ruler. The title was recognized by Poland-Lithuania, Prussia, which is different from Russia, and even Sweden. The other rulers of Europe were hesitant to recognize this title because there was a connotation that emperors had some sort of superiority to kings, which technically they don't. Now as Emperor of Russia, Peter decided to take one last stand at conquest and waged war against the Safavid Persian Empire in order to gain land in the Caucasus Mountains and along the Caspian Sea. He would manage to gain land once held by the Persians in 1723, at least for a bit. They would have the land for 12 years before Persia regained the lost territories. Luckily, Peter was dead by then, so he did not have to live to see his empire diminished. Peter died in 1725 at the age of 52. He had held the title of Tsar for 42 years, though technically he had only done any singular ruling for about 29 of those years. So now that he is dead in this narrative, how do Peter the Great's accomplishments stack up? I guess it depends on how you feel about war. Most of the land Peter gained control of during his rule is territory still under Russian control. That being said, conquest is never good. One of Peter's major desires as Tsar and Emperor was to really beef up Russia's navy, and he would end up doing so. It just took several wars to do so. There was almost never a single time during Peter's reign that Russia was not fighting someone else. 
So in that sense, I would not say any more deserving than most other rulers in history. But Peter's time as Tsar was not all about war. Depending on your views about preserving historical culture, no matter how advanced that culture is, you might have some varying opinions on his westernization of Russia. In all truth, yeah, Russia was kinda behind on things compared to other western nations. They're basically a feudal state while other nations had gone through their changes of the renaissance and were accepting the new wave of the enlightenment into their borders. Russia really needed to get with the program if it wanted to survive against its western neighbors. Yeah, taxing boyars for having beards is ridiculous in a funny way, and taxing the poorer citizens into a level slightly above slavery is horrific, but it somehow got the job done. Russia became one of the strongest nations of its time due to Peter taking direct action. So overall, to be incredibly reductive and slap a letter grade on him, let's give Peter a C. Maybe a C-. He passes the was he great test, but he's still engaged in conquest. But Chris, almost every ruler you've covered so far has engaged in conquest. I know, I know, but it's my show, let me be petty. Also, in an incredibly biased opinion, I tend to think less of nations who try to take down the Ottoman Empire, which is ironic because the Ottomans were also super into conquest. That's kind of just a feeling of, hey, leave Muslims alone, please. But Peter could have done much worse. When most people discuss Peter the Great, it's talking about his achievements in making Russia a western powerhouse. And if you're grading him on that scale, he did very well. Now that we've gone over my opinions, let's take a quick look into what others think of Peter the Great. Let's start with those in Peter's own time period. Voltaire, the French writer and the Enlightenment's version of a Renaissance man, Enlightenment man I guess, heaped high praise upon Peter the Great, going so far as to write a biography over the emperor and calling him Russia's own man of the Enlightenment. 19th century Russian writer and poet Alexander Pushkin's poem, The Bronze Horseman, begins by making Peter the Great an almost larger-than-life figure as he sets out to build St. Petersburg, and the poem almost goes to the point of deifying him. Opinions towards Peter then took a brief dip during the rest of the 19th century, mostly by people who weren't even Russian. Slavic cultural enthusiasts painted Peter as the destroyer of pure Slavic culture in favor of the trendy Western European life. Napoleon, during his time in power, had a fake report commissioned that allegedly revealed Peter's plans to dominate the entire Eastern world by conquering Constantinople, Afghanistan, and India. By the by, Napoleon was using this to justify his own attempted conquest of Russia. In slightly more modern times, we get a mixed review towards Peter when it comes to the communist revolution in Russia. Most of the Bolsheviks, the Russian communists, had a very negative view of the entire Romanov dynasty. You know, kind of the reason they overthrew the government. However, one man in the group actually had a positive opinion of Peter. Joseph Stalin. 
Now, seeing as I refuse to do a Stalin episode, let's keep his views brief. Stalin thought Peter's iron grip on his nation was an admirable quality in a leader. Modern critics of Peter even go so far as to say he was a major influence towards Stalin's dictator regime. In modern times, Peter's reign still remains fairly mixed, for all the reasons I've personally pointed out, and also all the reasons historical figures have pointed out. He brought Russia out of obscurity, but it did take a heavy toll on his people. He had his fair share of both admirers and critics. But when one of those admirers is Joseph Stalin, kinda makes you think twice. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and subscribe to the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time, we're heading far south of Russia to southern Africa to explore the rule of one of the conquering kings of tribal Africa, Shaka Zulu. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. Whoa, 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 whoa.